0: Hello, Jill Herman here, host of Be You Podcast. I'm so happy you're here with me. And I'm really, really, really honored to share this episode and next week's episode with you a two part conversation with the amazing astrologer, Rachel Ruth Tate. So I knew nothing about astrology. I still know about I don't know, a pinky nails worth. I have never honestly been drawn to astrology until now. And I honestly didn't even feel the inkling to pursue it, to even learn anything about it. While having no judgment around it, I just wasn't drawn to it. Although I always knew that I showed up and I do show up as a classic Scorpio. I knew a lot about my sign and about me. So I thought and very little about any other signs. I knew nothing about what astrology actually is or is not. I knew nothing about where the information is derived. I knew nothing about how to take our astrological chart, I guess it's called, and interpret it. I didn't know, okay, here's what I will say. I didn't know there were experts like Rachel Ruth Tate. I didn't, i had heard of astrologers, but... I almost thought of them as like fortune tellers. I'm saying all of that because I know I'm not the only one. I know that many of you listening are like, me too. Same. Now, some of you are quite familiar with astrology. You also are going to love these conversations. I do not believe for a moment that it's a coincidence that I was connected with Rachel Ruth Tate. I, my passion for astrology was ignited in our very first conversation. I am so fascinated now. I can't wait to learn more. I didn't understand that this was a science. I didn't understand that this was, had nothing to do with reading as in giving information based on intuitive gifts or even opinion. I didn't understand that it was quite literal with room for inf- interpretation, yet quite literal. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Rachel. It's funny, I, I, I'm i reading her bio and she is, is as complex as I suspected. The variety of certifications that she has, none of it surprises me. She's one of the most brilliant people I've ever come across. She has a vocabulary that is so beyond mine that I, I need to have like a quick dictionary source next to me so that I can look up some of the words she shares. Yet. She is the most real, down-to-earth, approachable person you'll ever meet. So Rachel Ruth Tate is actually much more than an astrologer, but she's a Hellenistic astrologer, which she explains in this episode, and an astrological coach. So she will do your reading, interpret your chart, forgive me, I'm using my language here, and coach you on your life around that. And so what I asked her to do and she delivered Beyond My Wildest Dreams, is to do a two-part episode. So today you're going to hear her explain what astrology is, what it is not, what is this certain type of astrology that she has studied, what's the difference between that and others, what can astrology do for you? And we also talk about you know the bad rap it gets in the faith or religious community. Where does that come from? It's a really great conversation. She also gives you a gift and does a general reading for the collective, for all of us for 2024. Now, I'm going to tell you ahead of time. It's a complex topic with so many different layers, and it has its own language. And as I said, she is just so unbelievably brilliant. There are probably going to be moments where it might be a lot to digest. Please hang in there. Listen to every single word and go back and listen if you choose, but please listen to all of it. By the end of this, you're going to have a completely new appreciation for astrology, a new for sure level of understanding of astrology. And you'll know this is something you want to look into more and learn more about. I highly recommend Rachel With Tate. She has now worked with me personally. She is now doing readings for my children, for my husband. I plan on working with her and really looking at doing some coaching around some projects I have coming in this year. Let's just get to it. Who is Rachel? So Rachel is a certified NLP practitioner and a hypnotherapist receiving a cognitive behavioral therapy certificate. She is certified to facilitate flotation therapy, and she completed coursework in integrative wellness and life coaching. She apprenticed to world-renowned meditation teacher Benjamin Decker and was later employed by world-famous meditation studios like Unplug and The Den. Though the art of astrology came to Rachel intuitively, She also received her certification in the Fundamentals of Astrology through her longtime inspiration, premier Hellenistic astrologer and author, Austin Kopak. She happens to also be a published author of a collection of poetry, which by the way, I checked out, called Meditations on Being. Beautiful. It was released in 2020 by Deep Vellum, where Rachel also serves on the advisory board. Today, Rachel resides in Waco, Texas with her husband and two stepchildren, practicing astrology for private clients all over the globe. And she also maintains a local food and beverage blog, Waco for All, teaches and assists in management at Yoga 8, and records the Texas Astrology podcast through Rogue Media Network. Here she is, folks. Get ready. Rachel Ruth Tate. But with grit, hustle, and sacrifice, I still built a successful multi-million dollar business. Ten years in, burnout, I slowed down and looked inward. In that silence, I discovered that the same level of success could have come to me with much less effort and so much more joy. That's when I threw out the expectations of the world and chose to unbecome every single thing I thought I was supposed to be. And the real me was uncaged it was far from easy. And in this podcast, I'll offer my entire journey as a roadmap so that if you're ready, you can finally be you. Well, I'm so honored and happy to be sitting down with you, Rachel Ruth Tate, and excited to introduce you to all of our BU podcast listeners and you know, for the listener, I want to tell you that I'm even more excited because I've never discussed this on the podcast and I know nothing about it myself. I've always been fascinated by astrology, but you know, I didn't sort of get the call, you know, like I didn't have a ping that said, oh, go look there. I just thought it seemed interesting. And lately I've been feeling a little more drawn to it and I had no idea, you know, where to turn or what would be a good resource. And Rachel Ruth was highly recommended. And so anyway, I'm genuinely looking forward to this time together and I'm excited that we have two episodes back to back. So for our listener, I'll tell you that I don't do that very often. I've done it twice in 3 years. But I felt really really called to do that. So what we'll do today is we're going to just talk about like like what even is astrology? Like it, it, it really makes no sense to me because I've never tried to make it make sense. And like a lot of people, I was really programmed to believe that it wasn't really something to look at. Partly from a religious standpoint, like, oh, it's bad and wrong. And then separate from that, also just like, I mean, why bother? And so we're going to talk about like, what is it? Not to convince anyone of anything, but to explain it. And then uh, Rachel Ruth is going to gift all of you with a reading that applies to everyone for 2024. And then next episode, I get to have a reading myself based on you know the information that I provided for her. So Rachel Ruth Tate, will you first share with us, how did you get started with astrology? I mean, it's become your passion. Like, how did you even get started with this? And then we'll go into a sort of astrology 101.
1: I love that. And thank you so much, Jill. I am overjoyed and so honored to be here with you. To have two episodes is just absolutely a blessing. And I'm looking forward to sharing uh, my passion with all of the BU listeners. So astrology was not something that I grew up with. Both of my parents went to the U.S. Military Academy. One side of the family are very conservative Jews, and the other side are very puritanical Christians. And you are not the only one who was taught growing up that astrology Might not be so kosher, strictly speaking, (laughs) on either side, but astrology was something that really came knocking at my door. And when I first encountered astrology and decided to investigate a little further, I was reading Plato's last book, which is called Timaeus. And in that, Plato breaks down his forms, but he also speaks to all of the planets and points in the heavens. That uh, and, and all the states of matter and how these things combine to form the personality of the embodied world and how these things combine to allow us to understand the lived experience that we have. Initially, Jill, I will not lie. Initially, I wanted to pay attention to astrology and learn it mostly so I could discard it mostly so i could be satisfied that it, there was no nothing behind it and i could leave it behind and that was over 10 years ago and things have not been left behind the more that i explored the more meaning and richness that i was able to gain from it and the more i was able to glean about the context upon which my whole life hung and make things make more sense so that i could get the most out of it to me astrology at a personal level is about maximizing your own time on this Earth, and about being able to accept your lived experience, make it make sense. To navigate this, this journey of life, and, and truly, the stars, astronomy and astrology, began together. They were inextricable for most of human history, And so that was how we learned to navigate the globe was by looking at the heavens. All those people sailing around before we had our wonderful images and maps, you know, Google Maps. Now we know what everything is all over the earth. And so we've got much more additional information. But in the past, it was truly the the heavenly bodies that allowed us to do that. And as above, so below, you could say.
0: And what does that mean as above, so below?
1: Well, it's a it's an adage, it's a maxim. But the things that are above us or beyond us, they are an expanded expression of that which is below, like the macro and the micro. So we go look down at the atomic level, for example, and that there's a very small view of larger things. So the further out that we can observe, the more that we can understand about ourselves as well. Just like the more that we can understand about the microscopic, the more that we can understand too. And navigation of the earth, there's also navigation of our own uh, earthly vessels and our time here. And so astrology, uh, as I've said in the past, is truly advanced timekeeping. I want to make this as digestible, as understandable, and hopefully as far from woo-woo as your listeners can get when when we speak about astrology. The physical and the metaphysical are really the same, and I can use the example of the Prague Astrological Clock we live our lives by the heavenly bodies, specifically by the luminaries, the sun and the moon. Our day is the solar day. Our month is the lunar month. The way that we organize and keep time is based on the bodies, but also that keep time astrologically. And if you add more to this, so Mercury, Venus, Mars, all the visible planets, then you can actually keep time in larger cycles and in more specific ways.
0: Okay, so I'm gonna ask a lot of like really basic questions, okay, so when you say the month is the lunar month, even that, I know someone is going, okay, what does that even mean?
1: So the moon takes 28 and a half days to complete its orbital cycle, its orbital period. And initially, before Julius Caesar decided to get involved and add his own months like August and July in there, the year, the calendar, was based on the month exactly. So all of the months were the same length as February, per se. And you can even see it with their names, October, November, December, 8, 9, 10. The prefix, it, it implies the, what the month is supposed to be about. And so uh, the solar year is another great example, as long as it takes for the sun to, or for us to make our way around the sun, right? That is how we define our years. So even though the Gregorian calendar isn't exactly astrological, you can look at the Chinese calendar, the lunar new year, you can look at the equinoxes, the solstices. This is how we keep time here on earth. And it's all based upon the sun and the moon. And then additionally, you can add some other points in there. And that is the practice of Hellenistic astrology, which is what I practice. It is the oldest form of Western tropical astrology on Earth. And it came about at a time when most people who were, I say most people, all astronomers were astrologers and vice versa. So Copernicus, right? He figured out we were going around the sun. This gentleman was a very advanced astrologer. And so were pretty much all of the people who looked at the heavens. Before about the 1400s, it was during Queen Elizabeth's reign that Christianity put a stop to astrology.
0: Okay, I was going to ask that. Because when you said that, I was like, they were. And then I was like, oh, I wonder if when Christianity had a say, things changed.
1: Interesting. Well, you know that Queen Mary, Queen Elizabeth I, there was this big schism in the church, the Catholic Church versus the Protestant Church, King Henry VIII and all of his divorces, etc. So things were pretty tumultuous around that time, and Queen Elizabeth I's rule was not certain, right? She was kind of unlikely as the as the heir to the throne, but she had an incredible astrologer and mathematician, a polymath named John Dee. And John Dee was the royal astrologer. But during that time, and specifically, I think, because of all of the resistance that she was facing, Queen Elizabeth outlawed the practice of astrology for anybody that wasn't the queen. So it became illegal. And actually, John Dee suffered from this too. As soon as she was done with him and discarded him, uh, he died in poverty, wow. <laughs> despite being one of the most influential mathematicians of that time.
0: Wow. So interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that astrology was outlawed by her was that she did not want anyone to predict the death of the monarch. Oh, this is so juicy. <laughs> right? It actually gets exciting. But that, that separation between the science of astronomy and what people call the pseudoscience of astrology, it did not happen until the 1400s.
0: So interesting. And then that stigma just carried on for a lot of people.
1: Yes, and one of the things as well is that there are elements of astrology that have persisted, and we see that in the form of modern astrology, sun sign astrology, outside of the Bible, one of the most widely sold, I think actually of all time, the the best-selling book in English of all time that is not the Bible is actually sun signs by the astrologer Linda Goodman. She was a huge deal in the late uh, 20th century and she really brought uh, modern astrology to the fore. But sun sign astrology misses the majority of astrology. It's all about the solar placements and the sun itself. And let's be real, in our, in our solar system, the sun is, is the most sort of central, important, visible, obvious uh, body. And so it makes sense that that would be where we kind of picked up the tradition that had been shot down But it's just only a fraction, only a fragment of the story. It would be kind of like trying to figure out the structure of the year if we just looked at the sun on a daily basis. Like the equinoxes and the solstices help us to to keep time, but also women. We know that the lunar cycle has a big uh, influence on not just the tides, not just the movement of the fluids on the earth, but also the female cycle.
0: You know there are, are are I would say I would call them pretty intelligent people and probably more educated than me, people I know, even just in my own life, who don't even know that. It's true. they truly don't know that or they argue against it. And there's just so much resistance. And I, I remember having a conversation with someone just in the last maybe year or two. I can't remember who it was. It was someone connected to one of my kids, and they were saying, because I said when I was a nurse, that I didn't believe this because people told me this. I saw, you know, I worked in the NICU, so that was my first job. But I saw and knew a lot of women who worked in in labor and delivery, you know, and even on other floors that I worked, that things just changed in the hospital when there was, for example, a full moon. And people would joke about it, but things really did happen. And a lot of other people kind of poo-pooed it and laughed about it. But I was saying to someone recently, as I said, that, You know, there's a connection between like the moon and like the ocean, like the tides. There's a connection to our internal waters. Like I know that I'm putting my fingers up. No one can see this, but a millimeter. I know a millimeter about this, but they were like, oh, that's just like an old wives tale. And I would, (laughs) would, yes. And I don't think they're the only one who feels that way.
1: Well, the water molecule itself, the hydrogens and the oxygen, it is a, a polar molecule. And the moon's orbit, it, is, uh, it affects us gravitationally. So in a scientific sense, polar fluids are affected by, by fields of gravity, which the moon has, and it's the closest one to us. So its influence is the most visibly obvious, right? Like the tides coming in and out. Or even you know, nurses, doctors, teachers will tell you that during the full moon, the kids, the patients, things have a higher energy. But this is not for some metaphysical reason. Quite literally, all that the moon does is reflect the light of the sun. And when it is arranged so that it is on the other side of the earth from the sun, we get the fullness of the sun's light. So the maximum potential amount of light being reflected and light is energy. So there's just more light around at night. Of course, the activity will be higher than if there's not. A new moon means there's no Sun coming off of the face of the moon, no light coming off of the face. And so things are quieter because there's literal, literally less available fuel, less energy.
0: I did not know that. And I would not have been able to explain that. But after you explained it, it's I, I'm having one of those moments like, well, duh, that makes so much sense.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's why as well during eclipses. So we'd have an eclipse every full and new moon if the Earth's orbit, the moon's orbit weren't tilted like they are, weren't kind of so wonky. And of course, we, we wobble on our axis. But when we do line up perfectly to where the light of the sun or the moon is eclipsed by the other body or by the earth, then it's an interruption in regular cycles, which is why oftentimes during eclipses, we will see very strange things happen in the natural world because there is this hiccup, there is this strangeness, there is this, uh, it's not unnatural, it's completely natural. But it is some major disruption in the in the regular cycle or flow of light. And I think all of us have been around some eclipses and maybe noticed some high strangeness. Just a personal example. I was watching the total eclipse uh, back in, you know, the, the Oregon eclipse, right? The great American eclipse that we were all watching. I think it was 2017. And I was standing outside watching with those special glasses and a beautiful giant yellow and black butterfly landed in front of me, just landed right there on the sidewalk. It never moved again. It just stopped. It just passed right there. And that that's unusual. I've never had this happen before or since. But those interruptions are palpable. And it's not about anything, again, too woo-woo or metaphysical. It's just literally circadian rhythms are disrupted.
0: So interesting. It's interesting, too, how we we tell this story that it's, to use your words, like woo or woo-woo. And we don't stop to question that. Like we've been told it is. So we just perpetuate that story. Or we just take on that story because, I don't know, if there's fear there or... It's just programming. It's just, I, I'm i literally, as you're talking, my response to you is, it's like an awakening. That's how I would describe it. Because mm. I didn't feel closed off to this. But I realized as you're talking, I wasn't closed off by choice. I just have been closed off by, I think my upbringing in society. And I sort of programmed because I'm finding it so interesting and fascinating. And I was like, how did I not know this? And now I'm almost like upset. Like I'm 52 and I'm just learning this.
1: And you're not the only one. I mean, we are all subject to the conditioning of our youth. And speaking of the church or being raised in any religious institution, there is aversion to things that might go against doctrine, but I would offer that nothing astrological actually goes against doctrine whatsoever and it doesn't challenge it, but rather it bolsters it. And there are places in the Bible, for example, where this is true. I think the most obvious one is the idea that a specific arrangement in the stars is what alerted the wise men, three wise men, to the birth of the Son of God on earth, right? To the birth of Jesus Christ and where it was. And they looked to the heavens for this information. But beyond that, at the time where you know the, the Bible was being written... Truly, there were even astrological movements in the heavens that alerted people to when to plant their crops, right? When Sirius rises heliically, we know, or we used to know, that the Nile was about to flood, and so we wanted to make sure all of our crops were planted. These things were totally practical, and that was what I meant earlier with this being this advanced timekeeping. It's timekeeping that has to deal with the cycles of all living things, and the constellations, we call them fixed stars, but they're not actually fixed. Those are the map against which we can almost measure ourselves. And so, if we're watching for this one constellation, because we know that when it is apparent at the horizon, we're about to have growing season. These things are just practical and pragmatic. And I think we've lost a little bit of that as technology has arisen. And When you think about it, too, outside of the church, well, even the church has experienced this diminishing power recently. There are more atheists, more people who are agnostic, more people who are not religious than there ever have been in the past. And I think this is one of the reasons why astrology is experiencing a resurgence, is that people are allowing their minds to be more open to natural cycles. And this could be a little bit controversial, but we all know that a lot of Christian holidays are really, they are fusions with older pagan holidays that also have to do with things that are, you know, the solstice, the equinoxes, these things which are natural and they are important when it comes to the rhythm of life on earth.
0: Will give us one example.
1: The best example that I can see, and this is not necessarily with the church, but this is one of them, is that. Sawan, which is the holiday that celebrates the autumnal equinox that has become Halloween in our Western society. Also the winter solstice and then the birth of Christ, right? The 21st and the 25th aren't too far away. <laughs> Those are relatively close. The beginning of the astrological year or of the zodiacal year is the spring equinox. That's when the uh, sun enters Aries. That's when Quite literally, the day is split in half and we begin to start growing the day. But that has also become kind of intertwined with Easter, Good Friday, Lent, all of that sort of stuff. There are probably more in there. But like I said, I was actually raised with half and half and we went with a Jewish half. So I'm not as familiar with all of the Christian holidays as I could be.
0: Okay, let's just do a quick bunny trail because I don't want to forget this. So. Let's just talk for a moment about why it might be beneficial for someone to consider giving themselves permission to not in the dead of winter right now. It's February at the time of this episode feel pressure to like set goals and, and get into that big doing mode. And whether people call them New Year's resolutions or not, I would love to have you explain to them why they get a big permission slip to not do that and how that relates to what you just said, because you just said that really the, you know, new year is somewhere around that, that spring Equinox, which it in my interpretation would be that it's just a more natural time to do what we're f- trying to force ourselves to do in January.
1: And I will actually take it even a step back and further and say that resolutions are really only um, aligned for people that feature certain zodiacal influences. If I am somebody who is meant to be more flexible whose chart promises this adaptability and this go with the flow ease, right? If I am somebody who whose chart indicates that it's really never beneficial for me to set resolutions, that is something that fixed signs and Saturn ruled signs people whose charts promise that steadiness, that constancy, that commitment. And I'll kind of take it out here and and bring it back to a more macro level. The beginning of the astrological new year, it starts with the spring equinox, which is when the day and night are equivalent in length here in the Northern Hemisphere. And when the sun enters Aries, Aries is the first sign in the Zodiac. It is a cardinal fire sign. Cardinal signs, they begin each season. They imply forward motion. They imply initiation and beginning. The fixed signs, they hold up the center of each season. So after Aries, we have Taurus, which is fixed earth. And that is the height of spring. When everything is blooming, there is fecundity. So all the fixed signs hold up the seasons. And then there are the mutable signs. Mutable signs are not directed. They're not initiatory like cardinal. They're not fixed, unmoving like, like those signs. They are flexible and adaptable and they imply change and decay. And so they end each season and transition into the next season. So the four cardinal signs begin each, four, each of the four seasons. The four fixed signs hold up the center of each of the four seasons and the mutable signs end and transition into the next season. And in February, We have the fixed sign of Aquarius. So it's the height of winter, but then it goes into Pisces where we start having the transition from winter into spring. It is not beneficial during this flexible fluid Pisces season to try to make linear progress. It's not going to make any sense at all. No matter what your sign is. Mm -hmm. Well, especially if you are somebody who's born during that time, it's, it's absolutely not going to make sense for you but it makes much more sense for people to make resolutions during Capricorn season. It's cardinal, right? We are initiating and engaging the winter time. So especially in the run up to new years, we all get excited (laughs) to set all these resolutions and the beginning of the year, the sun is in Capricorn in the Gregorian calendar. So January 1st is in Capricorn. And that's why a lot of people feel badly that they lose steam on these resolutions. Once we transition into Aquarius season, I'm here to tell you, one, you might not even have like in your chart, this might not be part of your enlightened quality. This not this might not be part of your purpose to hold study or to commit or to you know do that goal direction. Part of your purpose might be to be the one who changes, alchemizes, or adapts, right? That could be your superpower. Okay.
0: So two questions. One, if it is in my chart, two let's say, I'm not a big fan of New resolutions, but we'll use that term, make resolutions. What is the best time of the year? Is it during, around the spring equinox?
1: I think it's one of the best times to initiate and engage new things that you want okay. to grow because the yeah. day, the day in the Northern Hemisphere is growing in light between that spring equinox and that summer solstice. So we have more available energy to do literally anything and especially to form new beginnings there in the spring. I would say around the winter solstice, which is that mid-December time frame, we're doing all of our holiday celebrating, that is part of the exhaustion thing. This is the least light available. We are supposed to be the most internal, the most uh, in, our, in our hibernation state. This is the shortest day of the year. And yet, oftentimes in the West, we feel like we have to travel and celebrate all the holidays and buy the gifts and you know get these resolutions set. I really feel as if it it would be a lot better to do that during the equinox. And it also depends. Are you trying to start something or are you trying to end something? If you're resolving to end something, maybe the autumnal equinox is a better time to bring that intention in. And I'd like to actually introduce the word intention instead of resolution because all of the different modes of signs, all of the different signs can hold intention.
0: Yeah, I agree. I don't even use the word resolution and I use the word intention myself as well without knowing any of what you just (laughs) shared with us. It just feels more aligned to use the word intention. And I just, the end of December, actually on Christmas day and January 1st this year, our episodes were about, you know, closing out the year Calling in the new year, you know what we'd like, and setting those intentions with no attachment whatsoever, with not feeling like we need to set any goals or initiate action on anything. Oh, it's so interesting. I don't even remember what my second question was, and it, it doesn't even matter to me. I mean, it'll come back if it needs to. But okay, so what would you like to share with us about maybe some of the misconceptions about astrology?
1: So first. The 12 hours on your clock are based upon the 12 signs in the zodiac and not the other way around. So the very origin of us keeping time, that is where it came from. And it's not random, but rather it has to do with the band of constellations that the sun appears to pass through vis-a-vis our perspective here on Earth. And so that allows us to even keep our daily time, like our sundials are based on the 12 signs. In astrology. And I also want to introduce the idea that the sun is not everybody's most important planet. Mm. If you were born when the sun was set, the moon is actually your dominant luminary. So if you have never identified with your sun sign, you're like, I don't feel like a Gemini, my goodness. Well, if you have a Scorpio moon and you were born in the middle of the night, you wouldn't. You would feel much more aligned with the qualities of that sign. So I would encourage listeners to, if they're at all curious, take a peek into their chart. There are plenty of places where you can look up your chart for free. Cafeastrology.com is one of my favorites. And you might find that you were born in the evening and that your moon sign is really, really, uh, it resonates with you more so. Adding on top of that The most important thing, I think, to understand in astrology, especially if you're going to follow it in just a cursory way, if it's not going to become a deep practice for you, but maybe you want to read the horoscopes, right, in the paper or whatnot, the rising sign is actually the most important, period. So your rising degree will tell me a lot more about your life than either your sun or your moon sign. When people look at astrology charts, it often looks like Greek. It's like a big circle with all kinds of lines and points and glyphs. And they're like, I don't even know what's going on here. Just to orient the listeners to that circle chart in a very brief way, the ascendant or the rising sign refers to the constellation that was on the Eastern horizon at their time of birth. So that where was rising up over the Eastern horizon, that is what is beginning right then. And so as a person is born, they are arising. And it lays out the whole rest of the chart. So when people think about their rising sign or their ascendant, that's the eastern horizon. When they think about their descendant, that's the western horizon. So the top half of the circle is what was visible when people were born in the sky. And the bottom half of the circle is that which was not visible. It was below the horizon. It makes a lot more sense when people can kind of orient themselves to that chart and realize it's essentially a cross-section of the earth (laughs) at the time that they were born. So a lot of people, they might have a different paradigm if they have all of their planets and points below the horizon than above, our introverts and our extroverts, if you will. If nothing was visible, you're likely to keep it all much closer to the chest. And if everything was visible, you're likely to be someone who really needs people, needs to interface with the world outside of you and where that becomes an important part of your personality. And so, I would I would emphasize that a lot of these things are totally physical. They are not metaphysical in any way. And that everything that your listeners already know about the physical facts around the planets, they can overlay that on top of astrology and it makes complete sense. The best example that I have used is that the planet Jupiter in astrology is known as one of the benefics, which are, they bring us good things. Venus and Jupiter bring us love, joy, pleasure, cash, prizes, abundance, all those good things. Jupiter is known for its expansive qualities. So what in our life is growing? What in our life is being augmented, expanded? And what in our life are we here to learn, teach? Or how are we here to serve? When you actually look at Jupiter, it is a gas giant, so it's ever expanding and it's constantly moving. And because it's so large, its gravity field is actually what protects the Earth from being hit by a whole lot of space junk because it pulls in the asteroids, the comets, a lot of the larger debris, and it literally serves protects and is the for the higher benefit of all of the living things. The inner part of the solar system.
0: It's totally fascinating. All of this, I will tell you. I didn't know until. I mean, I don't think. Really doesn't matter, but I like to know things. I think it was probably in the last two years that I even heard anyone use the term that I just heard you use a little bit ago about rising signs i mean honestly i i you're either just you're a scorpio or you're a pisces or you're a that's that's all i've ever heard and i i would just be very surprised if there are not a lot of listeners where i am where they're they've just kind of heard that but they don't even know what it means and that we didn't understand the depth of this that there's there's so much depth and although it makes sense it's still very complex and detailed.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, what you're saying to me makes sense. And as you said, you can just take one and just slap it on top of the other. And I like, oh, that lines up. Huh. Isn't that interesting? I was told this was woo or metaphysical, whatever, but it's actually, it just makes sense. At the same time, there's so much depth to what you're saying. And there are so many intricate details that it feels a little intimidating, Yet, like I'm like so excited right now. I'm listening. I could just listen to you all day. I just want to keep learning about this. So gosh, we could go into so many different directions. But I will actually let you take the lead here.
1: Well, I think that it's important to remember that not everybody is visible from our perspective here on Earth. So I practice, like I said, the oldest form of astrology, traditional Hellenistic astrology. And the visible planets are the planets out through Saturn. So we can see the sun and the moon. We can see Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn with the naked eye. Now, that is all that traditional astrology deals with are those planets. The planets that are not literally visible are actually much harder to see their impact in the human life as well. But modern astrology has expanded to include them. I have myself I experimented with them the only way for me to to see how much information i can get is to try right and i have found them to be efficacious but the real people will say oh well how do i know that mercury is more important than uranus or how do i know that you know pluto's even a planet or why should i care well you don't necessarily have to <laughs> but pluto's orbital period is 248 years that's how long it takes to go around the sun So most people will never experience most Pluto transits, and it's really hard to measure then in the human life. You don't get to see a whole lot of it. Well, all the planets out through Saturn, Saturn has the longest orbital period at about 30 years, and so we get to experience at least one full cycle. I say at least one, hopefully at least two, if you live to the average age, the mean age, you get to experience two complete cycles, and three if you're really lucky. And Mercury, for example, its day is longer than its year. So we get to experience all kinds of Mercury cycles. And those planets, like the moon, for example, it takes only one month to go around the entirety of the zodiac or to go around the earth. And so we get to experience the moon in all of the signs every single month, which is why our moon emotions, feelings, internal sensations, why those shift and change so quickly. Mercury represents the thoughts, the expressions, the way we think, talk. Exchange, and we can think and talk very quickly. Our minds can change much more quickly than, say, our long-term struggles, which is Saturn. You know, we go through struggles that take us years and years to work through, to understand, to manifest, that deprogramming, right? that kind of deconditioning, unlearning. those things can take a very long time. But I think that people people want instant gratification and with astrology there is very little instant gratification <laughs> one because the system is so complex and two because it even speaks to the fact that our long-term good our higher good jupiter jupiter takes 12 years to go around the zodiac it takes us a while to understand these things and it requires patience and attention and a lot of that i think is fragmented in these current times by the amount of uh, stimulation that we're all receiving—so many lights, sounds, images, ads, uh, conversations—we're expected to speak with all kinds of people all the time, and so we're maybe not paying as close attention to our own internal cycles. They might be more self-evident. For example, back in the, you know, time time near zero, you know, zero AD, <laughs> right at the beginning, there was a lot less going on. And so the individual had a lot more time to interpret, understand, and attend to those personal and natural cycles.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, even 10 years ago, there was a lot less going on, right?
1: Mm-hmm. And I think when people talk about the age of Aquarius, that's probably something that even if your listeners are not, they're not astrological, they've at least heard somebody <laughs> in their circle <laughs> reference it. I do not subscribe to the idea of the age of Aquarius I. I think most people who are trying to engage with that are a little bit unclear on what they even mean. In my book, this is really appropriate to bring up for this year because Pluto, as I mentioned, which takes so long to go around the Zodiac, it's entering Aquarius. And so that long-term cycle, we're going to have a lot of heavy Aquarian energy. And part of that is this technological connection. Aquarius is our fixed air sign ruled by Saturn. So it's about the agreements that we make, the social relationships we have, and also how we how we form a mo- a more coherent whole through those connections. I think uh, clearly the the internet has been the most connective thing that has ever happened to the earth. And I don't think that's just my opinion. We all now can talk to each other much more so than we were ever able to before. And with that comes its own set of challenges and unknowns. And also all those connections, they challenge or they interfere with or change power dynamics. And that's part of what Pluto signifies. Power dynamic, fear, transformation, evolution. Almost like we can't agree about what Pluto even is. Is it a planet? Is it not a planet? Is it a dwarf planet? What is it? Is it in the solar system? Is it out of the solar system? that actually speaks to what pluto is and that is a little bit of the unknown the things which are destroyed are created are changed through the great and vast power of all that is most of which we don't even understand i often tell my clients that pluto is is, is about as important as dark matter we know dark matter exists but we've never been able to isolate it see it but apparently it's the majority of everything that is so i think a lot of the The nature of what we are powerfully paying attention to and what we're afraid of, that's changing because it changes with Pluto as Pluto moves through the zodiac. And just to kind of underscore that or drive it home, the last time that Pluto changed signs was in 2008, and it moved into Capricorn, which is Saturn's yin sign of tradition, establishment, conservatism, power structure. Like Capricorn or the castles that we build to contain society, and I think we all got to see like the big banks, the financial systems, the the establishment, if you will. There was there was a lot of fear around that, a lot of um, changing of where power and influence and wealth were right around that time. So Pluto's ingresses and transits are that impactful, and we are going through that right now. And I think I speak for. Probably not not just myself, but maybe some of the listeners when I say that there's a lot of change, very powerful and impactful change around social organizations and the power dynamics in society right now that deal not with the establishment, but with more like mob mentality or cancel culture or popular uprisings or revolution, those sorts of things. And I think that is kind of the the main introduction to the year and actually the introduction to the reading for the, the whole, right? The, the listener reading that I'm doing here, the major ingress, um, the major beginning of the year transit is Pluto entering Aquarius on the 20th of this month. And we're recording in January. I know this will be out in February. As listeners are listening, Pluto will have just changed signs. And so any major disruptions, major transformations, major new fears or worries that are coming up. If you go and decide to look at your chart, you can look at the area of that chart that contains Aquarius, and that's probably where you'll find a lot of the activity.
0: Okay, so I've said many times on this show that what's really scary for a lot of us, and I would say especially for women, is to ask questions and risk, quote, you know, looking dumb or looking foolish or looking naive, et cetera, you know, just taking that risk and being completely transparent or vulnerable. And I've used the example of being in a meeting and being willing to raise your hand and just say, okay, I don't get I don't understand that. Because when we do that, other people will say, oh my God, I didn't understand it either, but I was afraid to say something. So I'm going to ask a couple of questions. Okay. Yes, please. The first question is, I still don't understand when you're saying that it's going into capricorn let's say what do you mean by that like when you say that that planet is moving into what i would hear as a sign Mm -hmm. i don't understand what that means
1: so from our perspective here on the earth the planet of pluto or any planet when it changes signs it appears to be in that area of the zodiac vis-a-vis our perspective So say that uh, we had a, and this is easier for people to conceptualize because Pluto is not visible, but say I'm like, Oh, Venus is going into Sagittarius. Well, if you look up at the sky and you're looking at the constellation of Sagittarius, you should be able to see the little light of Venus right up in there, right up in there. Of course, she's not actually in the stars. The stars are further out beyond the solar system, but light is not just energy. It's also information. And so the information that's coming from the stars in those areas of the cosmos that's coming down here to the earth, that planet becomes infused by that light. That light is joining with the light of the planet. And so when we receive the light of the planet, we're also receiving the information or the flavor of the space behind it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I sometimes describe the planets as the players. They are the centers of energy, they are the the bodies. And then the Zodiac signs are more like the stage or the different uh, kingdoms. They're like different areas of land. And so as you're traveling through each space, you become different in the environment, if that makes sense. Like I'm different here at my home than I would be at like the Bellagio. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: It does make sense. But I'm telling you, is this where I I wish those listening could be like in my house right now with me? And I know someone listening is like, right now, raising their hand and going, me too. But I wish I could see the faces of listeners right now because I feel like there's gotta be at least one other person that was like, Jill, I didn't understand that either. I had no idea. Okay, don't laugh. Rachel, you're one of the nicest people, so I know you would never laugh at me, but it, it may sound funny to you. But I'm certainly not the most intelligent person in the world, but I'm certainly not the dumbest. <laughs> I'm definitely not the dumbest. Clearly. And I had no idea. Okay, I don't even know how to articulate this because I am going to laugh even listening to myself. I can't be the only one who's thinking what I'm thinking right now. I never understood like the signs of the Zodiac. I thought that was just like a chart somebody made up. Mm-hmm. I thought that was just a chart. And so that's why none of this made sense to me. And like, how is a planet moving through a chart, when the chart was man-made. And I didn't understand. <laughs> that makes complete sense. I didn't get it. This is like such a huge epiphany for me. And this is why so many people poo-poo this.
1: What we don't understand often scares us. And that which we can't explain, we often resist, right? But this is also why you know, there are multiple forms of astrology. The easiest example, Vedic astrology. Well, Vedic astrology deals with the perspective of the Southern Hemisphere. And the Southern Hemisphere does not experience seasons in the same way as the Northern Hemisphere. And so it makes, I I almost never, and I say this, I will take clients who have been born in the Southern Hemisphere. But if they are currently living in the Southern Hemisphere, it's very difficult for the astrology that I practice to make sense Mm. for them there. Because the way that they're experiencing the light of the heavens, like quite literally, the way that they're receiving information, that it's actually coming into them, the way that they would be keeping time is significantly different than from the Northern Hemisphere. The seasons are opposite, right? Yeah, yeah. And the chart is a 2D version of what is clearly a 3D process. So trying to superimpose planets and points onto a chart, obviously, it's a... There are different ways that humans have tried to do it. And there is actually still controversy within Western tropical astrology about how we should create those charts. How should we find the ascendant or how should we hang the 12 signs across? Because quite literally, um, 12 houses and the 12 signs in Hellenistic astrology, which I practice, they are completely correspondent. As in, like say you have a Capricorn rising, that Capricorn constellation, it becomes the entirety of the first house. If somebody was born, it was the very, very tail end of the constellation, which was rising, it it shouldn't follow that that becomes the entirety of the first house. It wouldn't actually be the same as the physical representation. So there are different house systems, Placidus being one of them. Um, different ways of creating that chart in which they try to maximize the amount of literal detail. And they'll be like, okay, well, your first house is now split between Capricorn and Aquarius since you were born at the very, very end of the zodiac sign. That has never worked for me. And I I don't even know that this is where I'm going to be a little bit mysterious and say, I don't know why the whole sign house system functions in a more superior way to the Placidus system. But when I began working in astrology, I was very open to both systems and to equal houses. There's a different method called porphyry. There's all kinds of ways of creating this chart. So the chart is way less important than the actual heavens outside. And I think that it's kind of like reading tarot or reading tea leaves or reading anything, that it's the person who's interpreting the results that needs to be able to actually gain useful practical information from what it is that they're reading. This is where the mystery comes in a little bit. It's almost like cooking where you can have the same recipe, but people are going to make completely different things. And it's not because uh, the ingredients are different. Even you know the tools, the ovens, whatever, they could be exactly the same. But the way that that person is able to Internalize and make sense of all the very complex processes that are going on, like baking is chemistry, right? And this is the same with astrology. There are so many different ways to take in the information and process it. Unfortunately, there's just no one size fits all way. And I look at it as there are many ways to slice the pie, but you can always eat the slice. (laughs) So you can always make meaning from any of the different methods of, of delineating these charts, but that it depends on the astrologer and their experience and also where you are on the earth as to what form of astrology actually serves you. Mm. You're not the only person who is either confused or, or thinks this is incredibly complicated. and It might be difficult to interpret because that is, that is the truth. I wish I could make it less mysterious or less complex, but it is a very scientific and artistic thing. It's both.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here's another question. When you said, I may get it wrong. I think you said Pluto, but I'll just say Pluto for just the sake of my question. You said something like Pluto is our highest good. Like who decided that? How do you know what each represents and who decided that?
1: So this is very interesting. Pluto, definitely not our highest good. That was Jupiter. Jupiter, Jupiter. A lot of the Greek and Roman myths, as far as Western astrology is concerned, they speak to the archetypes of the planets. So Jupiter is actually Jove. And we all know the word jovial, right? So everything that we would associate with something jovial, that refers to Jupiter. And in all of the Latin based languages, you have Cueves or Jeudi, all of the Thursdays are named after this particular planet. And this planet of Jupiter is the Roman name, but then you have Zeus is the Greek name. And then you take, and I mean, there are so many different mythologies, Sumerian mythology, Vedic mythology, Chinese mythology. Really no one person decided these things. The archetypes just appear in every form and every system and what this is me personally and a little bit less of astrology as a whole, I think that all of us are using and have been using across all time different words to speak to the same concepts and, and powers. And we get very caught up in the terminology and people are closed off based on the terminology. But this is just the Tower of Babel falling, right? This is just us confusing ourselves because we don't know the, the right language in which to describe the things that are before and beyond the language, like the movements of the sun and the moon. I say that the sun doesn't move, but like the movements of the moon, right? Those are literal, physical, but we, um, across different mythologies, you have Hera, right? You have Inanna, you have all these different um, moon goddesses who are all referring to the same archetype and the same literal, physical moon.
0: And it reminds me of the religions. You know, this is very, very taboo to say. And my Christian listeners are going to cringe. But, you know, I remember as a child, me saying, I just don't understand. I remember saying to a relative, it makes sense to me that every religion is just like its own like language or culture, but they're all talking about the same thing. And the answer was absolutely not. And I was like, well, that's what makes sense to me. And then I am, coming back to that, you know, in my fifties, you know, I think maybe I was onto something, at least for me personally, it makes sense to me that we're all, and again, this is really not going to land well for some people and I'm okay with it. This is, you know, my interpretation. My interpretation really aligns with what I said as a, As a child, and maybe people think children are naive, but I also think that children are so wise, (laughs) and they're so connected, and they don't have a filter, which is amazing, and they just say what what feels right to them, and it feels so right to me that each religion is just a different version of the same message, you know, which all goes back to, you know, love.
1: Well, and this is is not going to perhaps land well for the same listeners. But there are genesis or creation myths that come from every single possible part of the earth where people were. And we weren't connected before. So we were all coming to these from first principles. We were all deriving this meaning in the past, just on our own, in our own groups. And we were only able to observe the earth from our perspective on it. And so we might have come to some different conclusions. Like the sun god might be much more important near the equator (laughs) than somewhere much further north. And so we end up with these slight variations in the mythology, but all of these things, whether it be the Bible, whether it be the Dead Sea Scrolls, whether it be the Vedas, whether it be the Chinese papyruses, all of these were created by people. And it almost feels like there are certain moments where we're like, okay, all of those things were in the past and there can be no one like Abraham or Isaac here on earth now because that already happened. Well, why not? If we think of creation as being a constant, then the moment of creation is always now. And so all of the archetypes ever present would all be present at this very moment and across all moments.
0: Wow, that's heavy, as they say. That's <laughs> heavy. That's so, yeah, that, I really resonate with that. That's a really, it's a beautiful thing to ponder you know, to let our guard down and just ponder that for a moment. You don't have to take it on, but just maybe be open to considering that. What if?
1: One thing I like about astrology is it gives more of a neutral, in my opinion, language. If we're talking about planets, stars, these things are not quite as charged as the name of God. (laughs) They're more physical. And so if we can come to understandings through watching those, then we are able to not depersonalize it but it's something where it's uh it's a lot easier to talk about what's happening with mars than why I'm why I'm so angry <laughs> you know? yeah
0: yeah 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 and the other thing i just thought of is um I certainly don't mean to pick on anyone when i say this but the the people who understandably based on conditioning etc uh say something like and i've heard actually heard this said with some charge and sarcasm i've heard people say yeah, I don't go by the Zodiac signs. I follow the Bible as if one is just blasphemy and and bad and wrong and one is good. But here's the funny thing based on what you taught me today. But then they say that as they look at their watch.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Hold on. Mm-hmm. Let me see what time it is. I got to get to church. Ooh, isn't that interesting?
1: Exactly. Now, see, now this is where I feel like there's such a synthesis.
0: Yes, they're practicing and measuring their day and their month and their year by something that they are saying is bullshit in another conversation. It's it's fascinating to me. And I say this with absolutely no judgment. I'm just saying it makes it's interesting. And so if you're listening right now and you're like, oh my goodness, maybe that's me. Don't shame yourself for it. I mean, you didn't know. But isn't it interesting? That you're actually living what people are telling you to pay no attention to because it means nothing, but everything in your life is based on that.
1: I think unknowns are very scary, right? Like I said before, and we like to have certitude, we like to have certainty, and nothing is particularly certain, right? Like not even anything beyond this moment is actually promised. And it can be difficult, I think, for people to come to terms with accepting some amount of the idea that that the savior is not necessarily entirely outside or inside, that it could be both and that the universe is rather woven together and that all the meaning that there is to be made is derived from that complete fusion. Like we're not extricable from the fabric of God, right? If you will, that is more an astrological perspective. And I think that can be very challenging. Like you said, to people who are more doctrinal, but then they'll go on a hike and they'll, they'll use their compass and they'll look at the sun and they'll do <laughs> orienteering. And you're like, this is, this is literally what I mean. This is the navigation of astrology.
0: Yes. Or I even, I'm going off on another bunny trail, but I even remember in my, I had a network marketing business for years and someone on my team, lovely woman, by the way, was really irritated because in our Facebook group, I used the word universe instead of God. And she said, um, who do you think created the universe? That it was just like so insulting that I would use the word universe. And yeah, it's all just very interesting,
1: isn't it? Well, in Judaism, there is, so the name of God is, is impossible to say, actually, because the letters are yod hey vav hey, but the vowels are gone. And for those who don't speak or, or read Hebrew, vowels and letters are separate in Hebrew, and the vowels are rather above or below the letters. And so we have the letters for the name of God, but we have no vowels. And so no one is actually able to say the name. And I've always loved that. I've always loved that because it implies that there is an an ineffable, unspeakable divine, right? That we can never actually concretize it in language.
0: Yes, I actually learned that from a Jewish friend maybe 10 years ago. Um, I noticed in her Facebook post, the way she wrote, And she admitted, omitted the word God, but of course was saying God. And I asked her about it and she said, oh, did you not know that? And I didn't. And I also love that. I love that. All right. So let's really get into the juicy part now. Thank you for all of that. That was extremely interesting and eye-opening to say the least. So what is on the horizon for all of us in 2024 and why?
1: So 2024 is going to be a very dynamic year. I have high hopes for it. And let's just say that uh for all listening, a lot of us astrologers became much more vocal and we became a bit more public around 2020 because we all predicted like the worst time ever. Late 2019, 2020, there was going to be this terrible conjunction, Saturn-Pluto conjunction. It looked like like a world-ending, like World War II type conjunction. And then the year of 2020 really proved out all of, all of what we were concerned about. And I think it brought a lot of people into the fold because they were hearing astrologers, if they were tapped in, speaking about how bad 2020 was going to be back in 2019, 18, 17. And then that was born out and so they were able to accept or or be more interested in. But from 2020, it has been a difficult several years astrologically, and we're on this upswing. I think 2025 is going to be even better. But we're we were bottoming out right then and now we are gradually going to see more abundance and more positive things for the globe as a whole. So everyone can look forward to a much more productive year than maybe we've had in the last several years. The end of this past year was relatively difficult. And the beginning of this year is opening with some amount of relief. So for the listeners, the beginning of this year, the very first day of the year, the planets of Jupiter and Mercury had recently stationed direct, which meant that we had more access to positive information, more access to help more access to completed deals, things that had been stalled might have been really beginning to kind of fall into place around the beginning of January, and likely only continued to ramp up after that. So you're listening in February, everybody, January should have been full of activity, hopefully goal-directed activity towards purpose. A few different reasons for that having nothing to do with January, but rather we had some really great energy to work with, with Mars. So a lot of energy, ability, activity to to push things forward materially. And then we have the ingress of Pluto into Aquarius on the 20th. So if everybody who's listening takes a look back at their 2023, and they look at what was really shaking, changing, transforming, And maybe some of the more grave issues that they had between March of 2023 and June of 2023. That is a preview of what Pluto and Aquarius is. Pluto had dipped into Aquarius then and it retrograded back out. But just remind yourself of what that spring was like for you last year or this past year. And that's a whole lot of what the beginning of the year should be bringing forward, bringing more energy into. We've also got a series of eclipses that are happening this spring. And eclipses are interruptions in our regularly scheduled lunar programming. So in March, we have an eclipse in the sign of Libra. This is a lunar eclipse, partial. And on the 8th of April, we have a total solar eclipse in Aries. And this one is a big one. I referenced the Great American Eclipse earlier. This is the next Great American Eclipse and there will not be a total solar eclipse that affects the United States or whose totality travels through the United States until I believe the 2040s. So, this is huge. The idea being where there is the totality of an, of an eclipse where it's visible on Earth is where it will be most visible in terms of the effects on the people and things that are in that area. So, everybody, no matter where you're located, listeners, mark out April 8th. This will be a big, big, big day, big interruption, big change for everybody and specifically in the Aries topics of the ways in which we are beginning or the ways in which we are asserting ourselves and directing our personal energy. So we might be making major pivots. There might be some sort of hiccup in what we had thought was an easy goal-directed activity. But watch for this, and um, astrologers are split on whether or not eclipses are positive or negative in general. I tend to view them as neutral. They're just changes, disruptions, which can have positive or negative effects, depending on the person who's viewing the effect or, or interpreting the effect, and then depending on the nativity and how it's interacting with the own promise in your chart. So if people have planets or points around 19 degrees of Aries, then this will be very, 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 very impactful for them. And there is a theme in this eclipse of healing and wounding. Personal wounds to the self, specifically disempowerment, and then the healing of taking back misplaced power. So look for power dynamic and personal assertion in the world to be major themes for this spring.
0: Rachel, I have a question. Yeah, please. So obviously all of this is so, it's unique to each person. And is there something you would recommend, for example, on April 8th, that's going to be a big day. Would you, anything you would recommend for us for that day so that we really are, how should I say this? What's going to happen is going to happen, clearly. Is there a way for me to, I wouldn't say prepare myself, but get the most out of the lesson? Because I can't stop what's going to happen. But would it be to have a day of reflection, to be more open, to make sure I'm more hydrated, to be resting that day, to, I don't know, just be more in an observation place? Like, is there anything you'd recommend for a day like that?
1: I get this question often. I get this question often. And Let me just break down what makes an eclipse real quick so that we can kind of understand how to deal with them when they happen. So the eclipse obviously is a full or a new moon in which everything is aligned, the sun, the moon, and the earth in such a fashion as to create the eclipse. But the eclipse happens around what we in astrology call the lunar nodes, the north and the south node of the moon. The lunar nodes are just a fancy way of talking about the places where the sun's apparent path and the moon's actual orbit cross. Why is that important? It tells us where all the light is going, where the sun's light, the moon's light, where is the direction that, that everything is headed. Because light is just information, so it gives us the storyline for everybody. And that storyline is often referred to as, uh, people will call them the nodes of fate. But if you think about like the Ouroboros, the snake that's eating its own tail, that, that symbol of eternity or, or that mythological symbol, the north node of the moon is like the, the mouth, the maw. It's hungry. It's the attractive end of the magnet. It's what we're moving towards. It's the head. And then the south node is like the tail of the snake. It's the skin that is shedding. It is what we are releasing, like excreting. It's what we're letting go of. The tail is the past. It's where we just came from. The head is the future. It's where we're going towards. And this eclipse on April 8th is a north node eclipse. So, where it's taking us is where we're being pulled by karma, fate, God, whatever you want to call this. This is a thing that is, um, we won't be able to miss it, if that makes sense, because it's for us. So, the most important thing I think on the 8th is to observe. To observe and be intentional, being very mindful about who and what is trying to come into your field, into your life, who and what is calling for your attention around that time, because it will give you a really good idea of what what this eclipse, what this interruption means for you and what it's promising for you in your life. So right before we had this recording, I was dealing with a client who has this Aries eclipse happening in their ninth house of foreign travel, and foreign things, higher learning. And this person had already planned a big trip to Europe, right around this time, and was wondering, is that okay? You know, is this going to be bad, good, the eclipse? And I said, hey, just know around this time, something might happen to interrupt the trip. But this trip is happening at the perfect time, right? In your chart, this is what is called for. If you weren't traveling, at this time i'd be surprised <laughs> and also if something surprising or or shocking or or different didn't happen on your trip i'd also be surprised so for each person it will fall in a different place of their life and it will call for something different i would encourage everyone to take note in whatever way is meaningful for them whether this is journaling whether this is meditating something where you can be very intentional set that intention hold the intention and also drop into that role of witness. So you can witness yourself, witness your life, and then understand what's happening. So you can make more meaning from it as it's happening. In general, don't expect stuff to go as planned. That's all. So just don't expect your plans to happen perfectly. If you're holding an event, or if you are um, going to an event, expect Changes, delays, disruptions, major shocks, all that kind of stuff. So get ready for the unexpected and then be very intentional.
0: Okay, that's super helpful.
1: And that eclipse is, I'm emphasizing it much more than the one before it, just because it's it's a whole lot more exact and it's a whole lot more what's the word? Juicy for us here in the United States. It's really coming for us, especially people who live up and down the center of the United States who might be in the totality. I'm here in Waco and we are going to be like the the epicenter of the totality. (laughs) And so I'm expecting some very interesting stuff to happen in my own life in regards to this. Mm. So later that month, I I wish I could tell everybody that there was going to be some more smooth sailing there's going to be more surprises. So April surprises. This is going to be a very interesting, unexpected month that might really change things out in the collective or in your personal life. Later on in April, the planet of Jupiter is going to conjoin with the planet of Uranus. And Jupiter takes 12 years to go around the zodiac. So this is a once in 12 years style surprise or change. Uranus is sort of like an eclipse in that it brings about shock, change, innovation, invention. All the Uranian is associated with technology, with breakthrough, with breakout, with sudden shift, cataclysm, those sorts of things. And so when Jupiter conjoins Uranus, this will be hopefully a nice surprise. We like Jupiter. Uranus is shocking. Hopefully, this is financial benefit, some literal, tangible benefit, like maybe getting a promotion for people or coming into some sort of cash, right? But it might, depending on what Taurus is in your chart, this is where they're conjoining. It might also be something like a a job offer or being able to conceive a baby or something. It's something that is sudden, shocking, and positive. So expect a little uh, something good at the end of April. Rachel, sorry, sorry Rachel, another yeah. question.
0: I'm, I'm that Not student that keeps raising their hand. Okay, so when you explained as above, so below, does that mean that when you are speaking on the terms of, you know, this new year for all of us, does that mean if there's something that the planets are showing us for the collective, it automatically also applies like within us? Or are there sometimes things that you're like, this is just a collective thing? Does that make sense, my question?
1: Yes, yes. So it always applies to the personal as well as the collective. Okay. What I'm describing is the astrological weather and the weather will impact each nativity in a different way. So say you're somebody who, to use this example, I was just talking about things happening in Aries and now something happening in Taurus. Say you literally have nothing, no planets, no points, no important angles, nothing in your chart that is around Aries or Taurus. This will feel much less impactful for you than somebody who has major planets and points in Aries or in Taurus. So while the collective will be experiencing it, we won't all be experiencing it the same way. And kind of to pull one level back, people have birth charts but so do countries Mm. so do companies anything that is created has a birth chart so the United States as an example it's pretty well established across astrologers over the last couple of hundred years that the United States there's one chart the U.S. Sibley chart and people can look it up Sibley it has the U.S. being a Sagittarius rising And this had to do with the uh, Declaration of Independence, the Constitutional Convention. I forget which one of it is that they chose, but there's one that they chose and it ends up really playing out or proving out through the years. But that makes Taurus our sixth house and Aries our fifth house. And so we can expect maybe some major issues for the United States, major issues in terms of discontent, physical issues, monetary issues. This is not as positive for the United States as it might be for some other country, some other person, or some other company.
0: Got it. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Thank you for allowing me to interrupt that. It's super helpful.
1: (laughs) This is your show. You are not interrupting whatsoever. And you're also the best because I'm sure that there are so many people who are listening who have the same exact question, like you mentioned earlier, or who want clarification. I deal with this stuff every single day. And so I know sometimes I can gloss over things that could be, you know, a huge question mark. I could be leaving information dangling. So you're helping me tremendously. I would say the first half of the year for the listeners, there is a lot of energy of quick, swift motion. There's a quickening. There is, um, there are going to be some changes, some shocks, some mix-ups. You will be different. Everybody will be different once we come into June than we were the first half of the year. We will be completely changed. The environment will be completely changed, but we will have made some significant progress. All the planets are direct. And all the planets at the end of this past year were all retrograde. They kind of have synced up in this way. And for listeners as well, what is retrograde? We hear it all the time, but what does it mean? So retrograde, planets don't move backwards. They don't. They move forwards. However, because all of the orbits are elliptical, and so is ours, and because we are tilted and turning, it can appear that planets are moving backward, almost like when you're driving past a car on the highway and it looks like their wheels are going backward. They're not actually going backward. It just appears this way. And so retrogrades, things aren't going backwards, but it can appear that they are in the human life. We will oftentimes not see the progress that is happening in the background until the planet resumes its forward motion. And when people were observing these planets in the past... They gave these things much more significance because it's unusual for something to look like it's moving backwards in the sky. Now, it is these very orbits and the, the watching of these orbits that allowed previous astronomers to theorize that there were other planets outside of Saturn that they couldn't see like Uranus, Neptune, because they noticed the impacts on the orbits of the inner planets that something must be out there gravitationally affecting them. But retrogrades are just their periods in which we don't experience forward motion, we don't witness the same progress, and we oftentimes have to refine, reflect, or edit in one specific area. So the beginning of this year, we are not editing, we are not refining, we are forward moving, everything is direct, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, we love it, everything is direct.
0: Okay, another question. (laughs) Yeah. So again, it's a little bit of a left term, but it's related. When you use the the term retrograde, I feel like I'm a very um, intuitive person. I feel things deeply. I'm very aware. And when I see all over social media about, oh, such and such planets in retrograde and everyone's complaining, I never feel it. Why is that? Mm. I don't feel that. Like they'll say, you know, all the things that are said, like things aren't, everything's sort of haywire. Things are, I mean, there might've been a couple of times where I noticed it, but really not so much. And that's not me pretending or numbing out or trying to be positive. I just don't. Do you think it has something to do with my particular chart? Or what would you say about that? Yes. It's happened many times, like many, many times where I'm like, I'm sorry, Judy, I I hear you, but I don't feel it.
1: So, oftentimes people who are born with natal planets retrograde, they feel more natural during the retrograde periods of those planets or of other planets. So, if you or the listeners have many retrograde planets, it would likely not feel disruptive, not feel confused, not be, it would be more natural, more native to you, and you'd feel normal, you'd feel regular. Also, the each person's chart is ruled by the ruler of the ascendant. So the planet that governs the ascendant sign. If you're somebody who say has a Mercury sign rising like Gemini or Virgo or Mercury's two signs. say you're a Gemini or a Virgo rising, the retrogrades, the frequent retrogrades of Mercury would impact you much, much more than other people. It would literally impact you, your physical self, your body, your personal experience. Now, some people like myself, I am a Leo rising, which means that the sun rules my ascendant. The sun doesn't retrograde. I don't feel retrogrades quite like that either. It doesn't impact me particularly. So my energy is more constant and available. And these retrogrades don't tend to discombobulate me personally.
0: Okay, just because I can't wait till the next episode. I know you're going to talk about me next time, but is mine like that too, based on what I just told you?
1: I have not honestly looked.
0: Okay, well, will be interesting. Ooh, we'll find out next episode.
1: You'll have a, a cliffhanger for everybody listening. Like, okay. They wanted to know and they're missing it. Okay. so I will find out what your, what your ascendant ruler is. But the ascendant ruler has a lot to do with how you personally experience any given retrograde transit and the amount of natal retrograde energy that you have, or retrograde planets, that would make things seem more typical, more regular, as well.
0: Okay, does that answer. It does. Your it does. Thank you.
1: Oh, you're welcome. And I'm now curious too. I, I would bet that you're either a Cancer or Leo rising. Most people often don't feel the retrogrades half as much. So, the first half of the year, no retrogrades, fast motion. The planets are flying. We're making progress. I would encourage people, if there's any goal they really want to achieve, and this is not true of every year, (laughs) I I didn't bring this up earlier, because it was kind of harder to fit in, January and February are your months, because there is much more energy of forward motion, we have great Mars, we've got the ability to um, get things done that will have a positive impact long term. So, people might feel like they were exceptionally busy. This is not every January and February. This is just these jan- this January and this February. Because as soon as we hit March and April, there's a whole lot of those interruptions that are bubbling up and coming up. So, it won't be as easy for us to goal direct and achieve as it was the first two months of the year. Now, I think that we should have a very positive April-May because in May, there's some wonderful astrology and also the planet of Jupiter changes signs and it moves into Gemini at the end of May. And I think that that really gives the first half of the year a different personality than the second half of the year. Second half of the year, we'll experience more of those planetary retrogrades. So there'll be a little bit more of that editing process. And also we will experience Pluto dipping back into Capricorn as of September which I mentioned. So I've gotten a lot of questions about the election, the American presidential election that's happening in November. And people want to know if I can see who's going to win, who's not going to win. A lot of us hesitate to make these calls. And especially a lot of us are hesitating now because Capricorn is the establishment. And I wish I could say that something else were to be, you know, Pluto would be in the non-establishment sign during the election, but Pluto will be back in Capricorn. So I would predict that the person who is going to win is somebody who has been president before or is in the establishment. They're not somebody new. They're not someone disruptive. It's not going to be a big change. This is a little more of the same.
0: All right. So Kennedy's not going to make it. Uh, Well,
1: (laughs) Kennedy is a very established name, isn't it? It
0: is, but he's never.
1: Right, right. But he comes from old power.
0: Okay, well, maybe so that. This doesn't,
1: this doesn't discount him. Someone like Marianne Williamson, though, I think, you know, I love yeah. her. No,
0: I love her too, no. but it's not happening, Marianne. I'm, I mean, it's just not yeah. happening.
1: <laughs> it's not going to happen. So Pluto goes back into Capricorn, and we have a couple more eclipses. There's going to be the first eclipse in Pisces. That's happened in about nine years. So for people with planets or points in Pisces, this September might be very interesting or exciting for them. Um, What does this mean? It's going to be spiritual. We're going to have some emotional spiritual. Pisces is the last sign in the zodiac. It's ruled by Jupiter and it's Jupiter's sign of received wisdom the truth that you know by the way it feels, like capital T truth and not necessarily facts. So if you have something a bit more like a retreat or like a yoga training or something, just even if it's a church thing, something more spiritual happening in that fall timeframe, it's a very powerful time for transformations in that way. So I would encourage people to be open to all of what the fall brings for them. There will be a little bit more editing of your previously established version of how, you know, quote unquote, how things are, how religion is, how structures are supposed to work. And there should be some really powerful felt and sensed breakthroughs around that time. So that's exciting. There's another eclipse in Libra in October. So I see this eclipse in Libra as being... time when you might experience some breakups, whether it's a breakup of uh, a relationship or a breakup with a job, a boss, it'll be some former connection, which you're just now finding is not in harmony with your life at this moment. And we'll be letting some things and people go that we are related to or connected with. And probably because of this spiritual insight or this emotional insight that we gained With that Pisces eclipse, there is going to be some form of maturing that we experience here too, as in maybe we have not been open and we open up, or maybe we've been too open and we learn about boundaries, just something where we take our previous experiences and based on those, we evaluate, grow up and internally understand how things have to be different in order for us to grow and experience our highest good. The fall will end with Pluto heading back into Aquarius there at the end of November. And so once and for all, never again in our lifetimes will Pluto be in Capricorn. I see this as being really a seminal point. So a lot of what was true before November 20th, what we were worried about, afraid of, all that, it will be totally different. I'm thinking more about power to the people, democratization of things, the spreading out of things, which gives us things like cancel culture, mobs, uh, revolutions, but we'll be doing a lot more of that evolving collectively, probably based on all of the insights that I mentioned previously. The thing we close out the year with is a Mars retrograde in Leo. What does that mean? we're going to be doing a lot of self-evaluation. How am I and how do I assert myself in this paradigm? Since things have changed, since I have changed, now how do I need to change the way I express myself? And this will be true of every individual, but it will also be very true of the collective, that we, we will have to reevaluate our values. What is it that I value and where should I prioritize? How should I allocate my energy? And what do I maybe need to separate myself from, specifically my identity? So maybe I've always been a Republican or a Democrat or something. Just use that political example. And I realize I'm now not aligned with either of those parties' values. So maybe I need to take a step back and become more independent in my thinking and really stop identifying with my church or my party or my job and, and really assert myself in a way that's truer to my own essence. So it'll be, I think, a little difficult the end of the year. I'm not, uh, how do I put this? Anybody who's traveling for holidays at the end of the year, there are likely to be disagreements this upcoming year. There's likely to be challenges of egos, people kind of challenging each other. And there might be some passing of of torches from one generation to another. And that might be very emotional for certain people. We will have just had that election, but no one will be inaugurated yet. And so I think that there might be some amount of, I don't know if it's grieving, but some sort of re-identification that we have um, or re-allocation of our energy or revisiting of what makes our identity at the end of the year to so the beginning of the year blowing and going cash and prizes changes having fun end of the year is a lot more serious and a, a slower moving more emotional
0: mm-hmm. so good i'm excited and this has been so enjoyable i want you to know like you're such a great teacher and I, I really could just go on for hours and hours more. I'm I'm fascinated by the topic, but your delivery is pretty spectacular. It really is. So thank you very much for all this time, for all the preparation that went into you this share. I'm really grateful that we connected. We have to give credit where credit's due. Um, one of my connections. Uh, She goes by Corky. Thank you, Corky. Mm -hmm. And I'm definitely going to be referring you to my friends. I just had a couple of friends say to me they were looking for an astrologer. So let's share what you offered to share with our listeners. I'm really grateful for this because I know a lot of people are like, wait, do I have a point? Do I have a rising? Do I have a falling? Do I have a whatever it is how do i figure this out before this new year um really gets gets going how can they get their own personal reading from you or maybe even work with you more often
1: so i see clients on an individual basis i also see groups if people wish to have readings with a loved one or like as a family or i've even done bridesmaids events you know things where where you might want to have a few individuals throwing that out there, but you can find me at rachelruthpate.com. And all of my offerings, my sessions are available there. I do typically 60-minute sessions. I'll often have clients purchase several sessions and actually will have two to three-hour readings depending on what it is that their prerogative is. I see some clients once and they get to know their natal chart and then we're done. And some clients I see once a week, several times a week, once a month once a year. It depends on how people find that information useful because to me, astrology is a tool and it's a tool as it works for you. For listeners of this podcast, please use the code BU for 24% off of any reading or package of readings. I also offer astrological coaching and counseling. If people are interested in Augmenting their current therapeutic practices or healing tools with the understanding that astrology can bring around those things.
0: Oh, I love that. I'm personally going to take you up on that offer for sure. And just to be clear, guys, when you go into her site and then you type in the code, it's B E Y O U with no spaces. It doesn't matter if the letters are lowercase or uppercase. Not at all. Not at all. Okay, great. Oh, so generous of you. Very generous of you. Thank you so much.
1: I am so overjoyed and again blessed and totally thankful to be able to speak with you, Jill. You are amazing at taking in information and also expressing just the most profound questions. And it's been very uh, illuminating for me even to just get to speak with you in this way so thank
0: you oh thank you very much well i really look forward to my own personal reading so we'll be doing that very soon and it will be out next week everyone have a beautiful week and always focus again on breathing loving yourself fully and surrendering